to an NJ Spotlight podcast. In this program, the Delaware River Watershed, protecting today and tomorrow. This program contains the panel discussion, recorded September 15th at Camden County College in Camden, New Jersey. On the panel, Jennifer Adkins, Executive Director of the Partnership for the Delaware Estuary. Tim Dillingham, Executive Director of the American Literal Society. Dennis Hart, Executive Director of the Chemistry Council of New Jersey. Doug O'Malley, Director, Environment, New Jersey, and Maya Van Rossum, the Delaware Riverkeeper. Moderating the panel is Tom Johnson of NJ Spotlight. My name's Tom Johnson um, uh, with uh, NJ Spotlight from the start, and uh, thanks for everyone for coming. Uh, okay, well, we're running a little bit late behind schedule as usual, so I'll just uh, get the uh, session started. We'll start off with uh, Jennifer Adkins. She's executive director of the Delaware River Estuary Partnership for the Delaware River Estuary. Uh, she's uh, been working on watershed issues for quite some time, and uh, we'll start off with Jennifer. Sure. So, um, first off, I want to thank Carol. Where did you, oh, there she is, Carol. Um, for you know, really laying out nicely, I think a lot of the issues when we think about the topic of um, protecting for today and tomorrow in this watershed and sort of the the issues that we see coming up. Carol did a great job of laying them all out there, and I would say, you know, that the, the issues that she talked about, pretty much all of them, are things that are on our radar screen uh, as an organization and as the National Estuary Program for the Delaware River and Bay. Certainly, those are the things that come to my mind as the challenges for the future. Um, but, but also, as a nonprofit and as an estuary program with more of a focus on the lower basin than the upper basin, although certainly we do get involved and we do care about you know, what's happening in the upper basin. Um, one that I would highlight particularly that's been a, a big, big part of our work and I think is going to be a big part of our work in the future is climate change and the impact of climate change. And I think some of the things in the news lately uh, give us some pretty stark reminders of why that is so important. But Coastal flooding, storms, sea level rise, erosion, um, all of these kinds of things are major threats to some of the work that we do and, and to the coastal communities that we work with around the Delaware estuary. Um, and, and not just in the future, but even now. So um, I can't help but think of, you know, my heart goes out to all of those folks in Texas and Florida and the Caribbean right now who are dealing with these major, major storms coming through, but really hasn't been that long since here in New Jersey, we were dealing with that with Hurricane Sandy. So, um, you know, I, I don't know how many folks in the crowd have seen a new study that just came out from the Nature Conservancy and the University of California that looked at um, the costs uh, of impacts and how coastal wetlands actually prevented <coughs> some of those, some of the damages that we could have had from Hurricane Sandy to the tune of $625 million. Um, so I think, you know, we're seeing some really interesting work like that, that it's not just talking about the importance of coastal wetlands, which us and others on this panel have done for years, but really now having the science and the data to be able to make those kinds of estimates to show that these are real costs that, we're, that we would have if we did not have these coastal wetlands. So it, it definitely puts things into different contexts. Uh, and for us, you know, we think about, we know from the work that we're doing on coastal wetlands that we're losing an acre of coastal wetlands around the Delaware estuary every day. So if these are preventing $620 million worth of damage, 
you know, from one storm, if you think about the impacts of losing an acre of those every day. So obviously coastal wetlands are a huge priority for us within the context of climate change. Um, and it's, um, you know, so from that perspective, uh, some of the things that we're hearing certainly from the federal level and even at the local level about maybe not having so much of a focus on climate change moving forward are obviously a concern because we see that as a major, uh, major threat and a major impact going forward. But I also want to go back to something that Carol mentioned uh, in talking about uh, nutrients and DO in the Delaware River. And that is that you know, the Delaware River is a huge success story in terms of recovery, particularly the part where we're working in the urban corridor. Uh, we had a whole section of the river that really couldn't even support life at one time. And it's only through the efforts of the Clean Water Act and many, many people, a lot of hard work by many people, including the Delaware River Basin Commission and under Carol's leadership and with the reductions in PCBs and the work that they've done on that, that it, it's been a major recovery story. So um, it is a little bit different than the story in the upper basin of keeping it healthy versus really trying to help it recover. And so sometimes uh, lately you hear some sentiments um, uh, sort of reflecting, well, we've, we, we've already done that. We don't need to do that anymore. You know, we, we, we did that cleanup and we don't need to do that anymore. Well, that's just not true. I mean, it's really the opposite uh, because if we want to keep growing and, and we all do want to keep growing, we want to have more people, we want to have a better economy, we want to grow business as an industry, if we want to keep doing that, we actually need to keep at all of the things that we've been doing and we need to do better. We need to find better ways to do things. We need to innovate. We need to really get creative um, and actually be better at managing our water resources. So I think, you know, to me, one of the big threats for us going forward um, is the threat of complacency, of thinking um, that, you know, Carol mentioned of, oh, someone else is taking care of that, or we've already done that. Um, I think that's one of the things that we, we as an organization are always uh, really trying to combat. Um, and we really need people to be aware and involved, um, which is one of the reasons that we're here today, right? Um, but I, I also want to mention that when I think about the future of the, of the basin, despite all of these threats, and they are overwhelming when you look at them all together, um, I also see a tremendous amount of opportunity. Um, I think we do need to get smarter and we do need to get better at, at the things that we've been doing. We can't just keep doing the same things. Um, but we've got a lot of new science. We've got a lot of new information that we didn't have 20 years ago. We just celebrated the 20th anniversary of the estuary program. Uh, we know a lot more now than we did then. We still don't know everything. There's a lot of research that we still need to undertake. Um, but one of the things that we're starting to, for example, um, when you think about a tree, we don't just think about a tree anymore or think about a tree as a piece of wood. We think about a, that the tree is a water filter. It's a carbon sink. It's an increase in the property values of the neighborhood. Um, it's an increase in, uh, for safety in the neighborhood. Um, so once you start adding up those kinds of values, and I think this gets to the multi-attribute kind of vision that Carol's talking about, you can start to make really better decisions and different decisions that you would if you weren't doing that. So that's a big focus for us right now. And we're working on, we're revising the plan for the estuary that was created when we were created 20 years ago. And we're starting to look to what's gonna come up for the next 10 or 20 years. And that's the kind of thinking that we're pursuing, thinking about what are the actions that we can take that can have many kinds of benefits so that if we are, if we don't have all the resources that we wish we had, um, which we know is probably going to be the case, even as hard as we fight to get new and better resources. Um, how are we making really good decisions with those? So um, I guess I'll leave it. I'm probably over my time. So. <laughs> That's fine. Thank you, Jen.
Um, okay, next up is Tim Dillingham. He's uh, executive director of the American Literal Society's uh, long-term uh, long fixture in New Jersey <laughs> environmental movements. And I can only say I've known him a long time, and he's aged better than I have. <laughs> you know, you, you've really made it to the pinnacle when you become a fixture <laughs> on the scene. Uh, thanks, Tom. Um, for those of you who don't know my organization, uh, or weren't raised by Jacques Cousteau, the word literal means along the shoreline. So we deal with uh, estuarine environments, uh, the ocean. Uh, we're primarily concerned about marine life, habitats, um, and we're, we're a national organization, but the Delaware Bay and its watershed is one of the special areas that we focus on. Uh, because of its richness, because of its importance, uh, its uniqueness. Uh, I personally uh, love the Delaware River. I, I live in Hopewell Township, uh, or Hopewell Borough in New Jersey, which touches on the river. Um, every spring for the last 25 years, I, I go to the spot where I think Carol took that picture of the upper watershed, up just below Hancock and the reservoirs, to go shad fishing, and uh, I'm happy to report that last year, last spring, for the first time in 25 years, I actually caught a shad up in the headwaters, uh, which is more about my fishing skills than, um, than the presence of the fish, but it is a, it is a tremendous resource. And I, I, mean, I, th I think Carol and then Jen did lay out the, the list of issues. You know, this is like most of the environmental challenges that we face um, both you know, at any scale. Like we'll talk about your town, the state, the region, the nation the world, we know what the issues are, we know what the problems are, and it is a matter of bringing to bear the will, the resources, the science to solve these problems. Um, you know, I think culturally it's, it's an interesting thing to think about our relationship with the Delaware River Basin. Um, I grew up on the Chesapeake, my family still has a farm um, on the eastern shore there, and the, the bay, the Chesapeake Bay <clears throat> is a um, um, much more ingrained, I think, in, in, and more broadly in the culture of the Chesapeake Bay region. I mean, pe people think about it in some little corner of their mind, and I'm not sure we're there in that relationship with the Delaware yet. Um, there are clearly those of us who know it and love it and spend our time on it. There are folks who draw their living from the river um, and so understand the water quality issues. There's, there's lots and lots of folks that are dedicated to its stewardship, um, and they have, an, they have an understanding of it. But it's not, um, it's not as first and foremost in our minds culturally as other places, uh, whether that's the Chesapeake or the Jersey Shore, or even increasingly the New Jersey Highlands. Um, and I think that's a challenge uh, that we have to face as we try to wrestle with the science, with the policy questions, uh, because without that uh, connection by, uh, by the public uh, and the recognition that this is a resource that needs attention, needs to be stewarded, needs to be uh, protected and steps need to be taken, it's going to be that much more difficult. Um, you know, I think it, to kind of draw, maybe go up a little bit um, in, in terms of the issues that Carol laid out, uh, they fundamentally come down to uh, physical changes in the landscape. I mean, the landscape is the water-producing um, um, part of the watershed, right? It comes from the forest, it comes from the land. Uh, we are seeing, you know, unfortunately, you know, so the, the perpetual sprawl, uh, the conversion of forests to urban areas, and all the, all the problems that come along with that, whether that's clean water, the loss of open space, um, you know, the loss of the forests themselves. Uh, we've been doing some work um, down on the, in the Kirkwood-Cohansey portion of the watershed, 
uh, looking at the use of groundwater. We didn't talk about the intersection between the groundwater aquifers within the watershed, how they feed the streams, how those streams then provide the freshwater flows, particularly into the estuary, and how that's key to the ecology in that region. And what we found in looking at um, comprehensively the permits that have been granted to agricultural interests and municipalities is that we've, we've overspent the budget, right? We've overallocated the water resources. And while people haven't tapped out yet, they haven't used all those allocations, um, should they get to that point, or when we get to that point, we'll have serious problems with the flows. Um, so this fundamental idea of recognizing the role that the landscape plays in providing the water, which then provides a basis for our economy, provides a basis, whether recognized or not, for the character of our culture, of our communities, and our lives, um, is one of the bigger challenges um, that's out there. Uh, climate change clearly is a, is a huge issue, um, both, uh, both in its relationship to storms and the resiliency of both the, the, the ecology of the, of the basin and the communities. Uh, the Literal Society, since Sandy, has been working on the restoration of uh, beaches along the Delaware Bay shore, primarily for uh, horseshoe crab habitat and, and migratory birds, the shorebirds and red knots, um, but with a sort of secondary focus on how they can add to the resiliency of the communities that are there. Um, those projects are really successful. The science we have show that we boosted the productivity of those beaches for horseshoe crabs. The birds that come in from South America, um, the kind of key metric that the scientists look at is how much weight they can gain before they take off on the way of the Arctic. A higher percentage of the birds are making that target weight now on the restored beaches as opposed to other beaches. But they're dynamic systems, and with sea level rise and with increased storms, uh, we're gonna, we're, those beaches have to be maintained. We spent a lot of money, billions of dollars, maintaining beaches on the Atlantic coast to protect real estate. Uh, we make a much smaller investment um, in, the, in the beaches that are, are tied to the ecology and which are tied to a growing economy for these rural communities of ecotourism and, and other things. Um, so that's another challenge that we have to really uh, move forward on. Um, I think in terms of the uh, responses, though, there, there are some bright spots, right? So this Delaware River Watershed Initiative that the William Penn Foundation has, has initiated, um, in which we are uh, one of the participants in it, um, is really not only uh, saving special places, gaining ecological and environmental protection value throughout those clusters, but they're field testing techniques and best practices. Um, so working with the communities, working with landowners, um, you know, figuring out how to manage runoff from farms, from urban areas, how to maintain flows, how to connect areas, how to minimize flood damage. Um, so all those cases, all those case studies, all those lessons learned have value in those places, and those places are all special, as Carol showed. Uh, so the science shows us where the, where the priority areas are. But the next step is how to scale that up, how to take those lessons. Um, and, you know, the, while the grassroots are, are tremendously important and irreplaceable in the political equation to make these things move forward, they cannot do it at that scale. Um, so um, it has to translate into government authority. It has to, you know, the government has to act in the public's interest, uh, which we think they have an obligation to do, um, as well as a more pragmatic economic argument you can make about protecting it. Um, the, uh, you know, there's the Coalition for the Delaware River Watershed, organizing people, uh, um, advocating for tools, for funding, uh, the Delaware River Basin Conservation Act, uh, the Land and Water Conservation Fund, 
National Fish and Wildlife Foundation has put together a business plan related to the steps that ought to be taken. You know, the DRBC, the revised water quality standards, um, the proposal to, to not allow fracking to happen in the watershed, all the tools are there, We're sort of poised for this next step of new approaches. But, um, you know, the scene in Washington is very scary because those tools are all dependent upon a healthy relationship with the federal government, whether that's a, a sincere uh, uh, implementation and enforcement of the Clean Water Act, continuing funding for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to acquire special places, um, resiliency grants to allow us to continue to rebuild beaches and uh, protect communities. Um, all that will not happen, uh, or it will happen at a much diminished level if the policies that are being proposed by the Trump administration uh, move forward. Um, and then lastly, this, you know, this idea of a shared river. Uh, I think I, I, um, I spent my years in government doing watershed planning, uh, special area management plans, they're called under the coastal uh, framework. Uh, but this idea that we need to do, to do integrated, comprehensive um, management and stewardship of this watershed that Carol touched on. Uh, we have some of the fundamentals. The DRBC is a hugely powerful, uh, potentially powerful entity and has done great things and it deserves a lot of credit for the, the, uh, the, the, the progress we've made in recovering this river. Uh, but they are clearly not being supported, uh, not being utilized. They don't have the support of the states. Um, and their authority probably could be a starting point for bringing in all these multi-attributes, as Carol characterized them, to manage this river and watershed more comprehensively. Uh, we just have to make sure that the, that the need to do that is recognized and translated into political will. Thank you, Tim. Uh, you raised a lot of great questions, and my first question probably be directed at you. Um, Thanks. Next up is uh, Dennis Hart. So. Uh, he's uh, executive director of the Chemistry Industry Council. He's uh, sort of a renaissance man. He's done a lot of different things and was a uh, top administrator and assistant commissioner at the State Department of Environmental Protection, where water resources was his big issue. Dennis? Thanks, Tom. When Tom first asked me to speak, I, I eagerly accepted, and then after I hung up the phone, I said, what the hell did I do that for? <laughs> um, when it comes to the Delaware River, I, I, I'm actually overwhelmed with too many things to talk about, and I'm having a hard time focusing my presentation. From growing up in Lamerville, New Jersey, and spending my entire summer swimming in the Delaware River to spending a summer as a 17-year-old under the Scudders Falls Bridge, hosing off the bird crap for the entire summer uh, and the poison corn that was placed there, <laughs> um, to being a Boy Scout and having to move to Camp Aquara, our beautiful Boy Scout camp out of the way of Tox Island, um, and then working for DEP for a, a number of years involved in water resources issues, particularly for Delaware River. There's just too much for me to think about. So I'm going to talk about something different as it relates to the Delaware Estuary, and that's about the economy. Um, NJ Spotlight is running a series now by former uh, treasurer uh, Rich Keevy about New Jersey's budgets. And I, I hate to give a spoiler alert, but the end of, the, uh, the end of his presentation is going to be New Jersey's bankrupt. Um, if New Jersey was a corporation, we'd be in Chapter 11 right now. And the reason I'm talking about that is every conversation about the environment, it's always been the environment versus the economy, business versus environmentalists. And we're at a point in this state where we have to just get away from that. Um, we are bankrupt in New Jersey. 
So when you're bankrupt, you look at ways, where can you get money from to keep this machine going? I mean, there's a few, there's a handful of us here in the audience that used to work for DEP. There was a time period when DEP probably had 5,000 employees. DEP now probably has 2,500 with more work to do than when we had 5,000 employees. Um, so what's gonna happen? Under the current administration of Washington, there's probably gonna be less money for DEP, which is probably the biggest impact on DEP than the regulatory changes. Um, so what happens over years with the legislature? The legislature says we need to, let's have um, societal benefit charges on your electric bill. We need to have more renewables, so we're gonna put a societal benefit charge on there. Industries in New Jersey, some industries are paying annual societal benefit charges of 500,000 a year, million dollars a year as a societal benefit charge. Where does that money go to? For the most part now, it goes to balance the broke budget. We have a lead paint abatement fund. We need to come into Camden and help renew these buildings with lead paint in there. Where's that money go? Balance the budget. Spill tax. We need a spill tax to protect the citizens against, against spills in the future. Where's the spill tax money go? It's balancing the budget. Very few of the, of the dollars collected now for all these intended purposes. They're basically a tax on industry. And that tax on industry is driving industry out. I can give you the names of companies that are involved in the chemical packaging and distribution industry. They take in chemicals that are made someplace else, package it together, send it out. Very uh, low impact industry, good paying jobs, good for New Jersey. The spill tax on a business like that that you wouldn't think of is impacting the state to the point where a lot of those businesses are in Marsville, Pennsylvania now because they can quickly move across the bridge keep the same employees and pay substantially less. So the reason I'm talking about this is we have, a, we have the old economy that was Salem County up through Burrow, Gloucester, Camden, Bordentown County economy that was built there because of the Delaware River. And a lot of that infrastructure, even though a lot of those businesses are gone, the infrastructure is still there. And it's still there to the point where we as business and we as citizens and we as the environmental community need to attract business back to those sites. We need the jobs, we need the revenue to keep the state going, we need the revenue to keep environmental protection going. And the old days of, you know, the businesses, the black hats, environmentalists, or the white hats, we can't have that anymore if we're gonna sustain New Jersey. Uh, and we're gonna sustain New Jersey, we're gonna sustain um, ourselves as a first class state to live in. Um, and I get quite passionate about it because you know, my family's lived in New Jersey for almost 400 years or longer, came over in the 1600s, and we need to do something to keep the state from going under. And business is ready. Business needs, I think there's an opportunity for business community, environmental community to hold hands, to meet with prospective businesses and say, come to New Jersey, because we can work together to make this a place where you can grow your business. Just last week, Eli Lilly announced closing their New Jersey facility, 3,500 high paying research jobs involved there because it's just the cost to maintain to do business in New Jersey is just overbearing. And it's just something that we all together are smart enough that we have to work on together to make New Jersey a place for both business and the citizens and the environment that we can grow the environmental protection and grow business. So that's basically my message for today. Thank you, Dennis. Interesting. Um, next up is uh, Doug O'Malley. He's uh, executive director of Environmental New Jersey. It's a 
prominent uh, advocacy group in New Jersey. Uh, Doug? Great. Thank you so much, Tom, and, and thank you to the rest of my panel members and to Carol. And, and quite frankly, thank you to all of you for, for being here. I, I think you know, we've already heard from a number of the panelists uh, you know, the, the Delaware River and its watershed is not just an abstract concept. It's where we've lived our lives. It's where we've grown up. Um, it's where we spend our vacation and our free time and where we, you know, where we basically create the memories of our lives. I, I was married up in the Delaware uh, Water Gap uh, and was just up there over Labor Day weekend. And, you know, these are, these are kind of the moments of time that we think about um, you know, what's valuable for us, uh, the watershed and the river is, 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 as Tim said, maybe it's something we don't think about every minute or every day, but it's incredibly valuable. And it's valuable more than just as a memory, of course. It's valuable because one of the largest industries in New Jersey is our tourism economy. And when we think about the Delaware River and its estuaries and, and its broader watershed, uh, we have made a lot of progress, and Jennifer, you know, referenced that. Um, you, we, you know, there used to be a, a, you know, a time where Shadfest was not as well attended, whether it be in Lambertville or down in Fishtown, right across the river in Philadelphia. And so we've started to see a resurgence in the river and resurgence in recreation. Uh, you know, anyone who's been up on the, the Delaware during a summer weekend, you, you think they're giving away uh, tubing rides. Um, now, that being said, we've also seen the river create economic opportunities for our cities. In Trenton, there's a major effort to try to reclaim the river away from Route 29, and we've seen that right here in Camden with an effort to actually use the waterfront as a place of economic development, and the same thing across the river in Philadelphia. And so it's critical to know that the river is, an, you know, is not just a uh, you know, not just a, a engine for tourism, but also an engine for our, our cities and creating that civic engagement, civic involvement. Uh, Dennis mentioned some of the, um, you know, the raids that we've seen during the current Christie administration. And I, I think, uh, at least from our perspective, uh, you know, we have advocated again and again against raids of funds that should be dedicated. And this, uh, you know, this, this fall on the New Jersey ballot is a question to ensure that remediation dollars that should be going to environmental cleanups at polluted sites are not rated for the general fund. We've seen that happen again and again. The Environment New Jersey was just in court earlier this week to ensure that the Exxon settlement uh, that the state pushed forward is invalidated and also working to ensure that that money goes to where it should to, to uh, create a cleanup. Same thing for the other uh, funds uh, that were mentioned, but I think that's perhaps most relevant to this conversation. Uh, I, I wanted to um, pivot back to something that I think you know we haven't talked a lot about, um, but it is a, where we've referenced it, but really is in many ways an existential threat to the watershed and to our state environment and the environmental agencies on all sides of the river, and that's the proposed EPA budget cuts from the Trump administration. You know, really we're looking at budget cuts that are beyond draconian. We're looking at a 31% cut that would take us back to, you know, even, you know, even, uh, you know, even to the levels uh, of the early 1970s when, you know, we obviously have a, a much more complicated world than we do did in 1972. Um, and it's not just kind of a rhetorical threat. You know, we're looking at staff reductions of a quarter. We're looking at reductions in enforcement of 24%. We're looking at reductions of our. Uh, water-based uh, programs of 34%. Uh, 
and then perhaps most alarmingly for the states, uh, our state Department of Environmental Protection agencies get a lot of funding uh, from EPA, and there's more than $100 million of state grants from EPA that could be on the chopping block. And so when we kind of think about where we are as a watershed, it, you know, we're, you know, we have a lot of work to do, but if the EPA budget cuts occur in any shape or form, it's gonna be that much harder for us to move forward, both on protecting our water quality and also ensuring that you know, we have uh, a, a vibrant economy. Because one of the biggest things that we've seen um, throughout the watershed is the concern over drinking water and drinking water quality and drinking water quantity. And obviously these are things that can't happen if you're not planning for it. One of the most devastating EPA budget cuts is a 47% cut in research and development. They're even cutting the science advisory board. And this is obviously part of a, of a game plan. Uh, you know, EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt it, you know, is really executing an, an effort to roll back some of the regulatory protections that have been in place. The most prominent one uh, affecting the watershed and affecting the country is the EPA Clean Water Rule which is an effort over the course of, you know, really a, uh, the last 16 years to clarify the Clean Water Act applies to navigable, not just to navigable waters, but uh, wetlands and headwater streams. And as Carol talked about, you, we need to be protecting our forested areas and we need to make sure that we're protecting the headwaters of our waterways, because if those are degraded, we're gonna see those impacts downstream. The EPA Clean Water Rule impacts drinking water for 117 million Americans. And it was one of the first regulations this February that EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt put in, uh, you know, the, put in the sites. Uh, we are now in a kind of public comment process that has public hearings via teleconference. Uh, so that kind of gives you an idea of, uh, I think, part of the, the change. Um, the public comment process is open to the end of November. But it, it, it's, it, you know, the, there's, there's so much kind of going on in the watershed, we can't lose, um, you know, we can't lose the, the focus on the impact of those potential cuts and the impacts um, of rolling back our environmental protections. I just wanted to end by um, talking about um, something that both Tim and Jennifer brought up, and that's the impact of climate change uh, on the watershed. Um, and, and Carol, you, you talked about this um, you know, very eloquently. But right now, we have a failure to plan for climate change in the watershed. And none of our documents, whether, uh, you know, we, we're not seeing enough action from the Highlands, uh, the, the, the Highlands Council, which is looking at revising its regional master plan. We're certainly not seeing it from the Pinelands Commission. We're not seeing it from DRBC. We're not seeing it from our state agencies to look at what the future impacts will be for climate change of coastal flooding, uh, for uh, water quantity issues, uh, and in the, the DEP water supply master plan that came out, we have a timeline looking only at 2020. In 1996, we were looking at 2040, and this current plan says that we're in stress in four watersheds, but uh, Bob Keskis, who is the former uh, head of the, uh, the watershed program at DEP, said, look, you know, that's, that's not looking at the full picture. A third of the sub-watersheds in New Jersey are at a deficit. So, you know, and this plan is not incorporating climate change into our planning process right now. So that obviously, you know, we've seen the devastation most clearly during Sandy and obviously now with Irma and Harvey. But, you know, the biggest threat in many ways is, is not going to be the hurricanes. It's going to be the extreme weather events, the, the nuisance flooding that increasingly has become more and more common, whether it be on the Delaware Bay Shore or in our coastal communities along the Delaware River. So let me just wrap up here because uh, I want to leave time for Maya and all of your questions. But these are questions that obviously aren't going away. 
um, and look forward to addressing them. Thanks, Doug. And we'll have some questions. Uh, finally, uh, everybody knows here probably Maya Van Russum. She's the Delaware Riverkeeper, and she is about to publish her first book on constitutional protection and environmental rights. It's called uh, The Green Amendment. And when is it out? November 14th. Okay. It's already up on Amazon if you want to pre-order. <laughs> okay, there's your last self-advertisement. That's right, my first and last advertisement. So, hi, I'm Maya Van Rossum. My organization is the Delaware Riverkeeper Network, and we work throughout the entire Delaware River watershed, um, fighting to protect the river and its tributary streams for all the communities that depend upon them, whether they are human communities or non-human communities. Um, and we also increasingly have to do work at the national level, um, given a number, a, a lot of the issues that are, we, we are increasingly having to take um, a leadership role in. But I think all of my colleagues um, have spoke beautifully and eloquently about why the Delaware River is special and why we need to um, care for it. And so I'm not going to do that, although that's usually my job, but I think it's been well handled um, here this morning. Uh, I do just want to say, though, um, you know, I, I truly believe that we best protect ourselves as a community when we best protect our river. And I don't care what your personal priority is economy, ecology, jobs, family values, recreation, health, safety, um, uh, uh, recreation, whatever is your personal priority, what you strive to achieve for your life, for your family, for your community, you will best accomplish that goal if in pursuing it you do it in a way that best protects our Delaware River and all of our water resources um, and, and other natural resources. And because I really come at all of my work and my whole life from that perspective, I really um, lament the fact that increasingly we all have to fight, we the community who cares, has to fight so incredibly hard to get protection of our beautiful natural resources. We have to fight hard as a community to get government, to get industry, to get others to do the right thing. Um, and even when we are on the path to success, progress comes too slow. And it's increasingly comes too slow because right now we don't really don't have the luxury of time for many of the issues that we're working on. And um, you know, one perfect example of this, Carol mentioned it, Jen mentioned it, um, the issue of dissolved oxygen and fish populations in the Delaware River um, is a good example of progress coming too slow. So we have known, we have scientific data that dem that's for 20 years that demonstrates fish propagation, fish reproduction is happening throughout the entire Delaware River estuary. And yet for a majority proportion of the Delaware River estuary, legally fish propagation is not recognized as a use of the Delaware River. And because it's not recognized that way by the Delaware River Basin Commission or by the estuary states. And because fish propagation is not recognized as an existing use, as a designated use, it means that we're not setting in place the high, the, the standards necessary to best protect fish propagation. Dissolved oxygen, you've, mentioned, you've heard mentioned a couple of times this morning. Well, the regulations for dissolved oxygen in, in a large proportion of the Delaware estuary that's so vital to fish, the standard is the DRBC standard put in place 50 years ago, 3.5 milligrams per liter. 
And um, just this past week, the Delaware River Basin Commission adopted a resolution that rather than recognize fish propagation and reproduction as an existing use after 20 plus years of data, rather than recognize that as an existing use, the DRBC said we need to study it some more. We need to study it at least three and a half more years. And because they took that step of studying this use of the river for another three and a half years, they did not take the step of increasing the dissolved oxygen standard from 3.5 milligrams per liter to what the fish actually need, something closer to five or six milligrams per liter. This is vitally important to many fish species, but including the Atlantic sturgeon that you've mentioned today. 3.5 milligrams per liter during the summer months could be lethal for the Atlantic sturgeon. The Delaware River Keeper, or the Delaware River, has a genetically unique population of Atlantic sturgeon found nowhere else on earth except here in our beautiful Delaware River. And we have less than 300 spawning adults left from that genetically unique population. We cannot afford to study for three and a half more years whether or not the Atlantic sturgeon are reproducing throughout the, um, in the, these key reaches of the Delaware estuary. We know they are. We need to recognize that use and pivot quickly to put in place those higher oxygen standards. But instead, this week, all of our watershed states and the Delaware River Basin Commission said, we're gonna study it some more. That's progress too slow for us and certainly too slow potentially for our Atlantic sturgeon. I think also we fight so hard for progress and so often for, you know, when we see progress in environmental protection, when we see a step forward, unfortunately it's often accompanied by one, two, three, four, five steps backwards. Another great example, this week, the Delaware River Basin Commission, which remember, includes the four watershed states and a representative from the federal government. So I think it's a, you know, it's a, it's a good place to be looking for, for what's happening region-wide when our regulators, our governments are thinking about our beautiful Delaware River and how to protect it. Just this week, the Delaware River Basin Commission passed a resolution having to do with gas drilling. And that resolution has been largely touted by the DRBC and some of the governors as, we've put forth a proposal to put in place a ban on fracking in the Delaware River watershed. And that's simply not accurate. That's not true. That's how it was postured in a, in the, a press article late last week, but that's not the reality of what happened at the Delaware River Basin Commission um, on Wednesday. Now, we have had, since 2009, we have had in place a moratorium, a de facto moratorium on drilling and fracking in the Delaware River watershed in all aspects of it, including disposal of frack wastewater and out of basin transfers to support fracking. And as a result, we've been wonderfully protected and our communities have been fighting to get that moratorium on all aspects of the industry turned into a permanent ban. And we were told that the DRBC was going to actually have a proposal for a resolution to put in place a permanent ban on um, drilling and fracking in the Delaware River watershed. The problem is what we actually got was a resolution that um, from the commissioners instructing the DRBC staff to put in place regulations for public comment to quote, include prohibitions related to the production of natural gas using horizontal directional drilling and fracking. Where, how much of the basin, to what extent, we don't really know. Some prohibitions, there was actually one article last week that said perhaps it would be in only two counties 
two valuable counties, but that's certainly not the whole watershed, if that's accurate. But at the same time, but still, okay, step forward, great step forward. But at the same time, the staff were instructed to put in place regulations to provide for the storage treatment and disposal and or discharge of frac wastewater in the basin and the regulation of interbasin transfers of water and wastewater for supporting drilling and fracking operations in other watersheds where they're permitted. Um, so while we may get some prohibitions on the actual drilling and fracking in portions of the Delaware River watershed, some of the most devastating aspects of the industry as a whole are now going to be invited into our watershed by virtue of the fact that we now have regulations, either bringing the, the dangerous frack wastewaters into the watershed or allowing the out-of-basin transfers of our clean, healthy Delaware River watershed water. So we get some protections, but we get some of the most devastating harms if this um, regulation, or if, if, if this moves forward the way it sounds from this, from this resolution. And at the same time, I just want to acknowledge, within the Delaware River watershed, while we have been fighting for protecting our beautiful Delaware River watershed from all of the industrial operations associated with drilling and fracking, we certainly do not believe that ours is the only watershed that, are, that should be protected. So we are not at all comfortable with the idea that our clean Delaware River water will be taken out of basin in order to encourage, in, induce, and support drilling and fracking operations in other watersheds and other communities, inflicting the devastation of those industrial operations in those other places, those other spaces, those other watersheds. That's not okay. We don't want our river to be, to be an enabler to devastation elsewhere. And certainly we must recognize drilling and fracking operations elsewhere also brings more damage here. You get more frack wastewater. That may come here. You need more fresh water to support the fracking, which may come from here. And you need pipeline infrastructure and other infrastructure to transport that gas from the wellhead to the end market, wherever that is. That means more pipelines, compressors, and infrastructure. So we, you know, it was one step forward, perhaps some prohibitions to some degree, and a whole bunch of steps backwards for our Delaware River watershed and also for other watersheds elsewhere. Um, we continue to have to fight, um, you know, thinking about how hard we have to work to protect our environment, to protect our watershed. Um, you know, there are so many issues that have been resolved, identified years ago. The solutions have been identified years ago, like how to deal with stormwater runoff. Somebody was talking about development and, and stormwater runoff. We've known for decades that the best solution for stormwater runoff associated with development is not to create and create it in the first place by how you engage in your development, but to the extent that you have polluted runoff, don't put it in a detention basin that puts it in the creek, soak it back into the ground. Use a tree to put it back up into the air. Reuse it on the site. And yet still, the primary mechanism that we see at the Delaware Riverkeeper Network for dealing with that issue is detention basins that dump it into the creek. We do have you know, some great progress forward, um, but that progress really is coming from communities like ours that are fighting so hard for it. PFOA contamination, right now in New Jersey there's a proposal, and in Pennsylvania there's a proposal largely coming from advocacy by the Delaware Riverkeeper Network and others to put in place critical protections against these cancer-causing contaminants. Um, so that's a wonderful step forward, but progress is moving <coughs> slow. The process is going on now, but we don't yet have the solution. But I do think the most wonderful thing that is happening, and it is happening in Pennsylvania, and it is happening because of um, 
government action years ago, but community action today, is the recognition and restoration through the Pennsylvania Constitution of the rights of the people of Pennsylvania to pure water, clean air, and a healthy environment. And that those rights are being recognized as, as entitled to constitutional protection on par with our other fundamental rights, like the right to free speech, the right to freedom of religion, our private property rights, that the rights that are, that, that are being recognized as belonging to the people who are here today and the generations yet to come, and that it is recognized that every government official at every level of government has an obligation to honor and protect those rights for the benefit of all of us, including future generations. And that, um, and I, this is not a plug, but that's to let you know that that's what the, the book is about, because Pennsylvania is unique in the United States of America. Only Montana has something similar. And so we're looking to change that here in New Jersey, in New York and Delaware, um, who don't have provisions like that, and across the nation. Um, and just finally, I do want to say that the only people that have ever made it business against the environment when it comes to discussions and debates, honest to God, it's really the businesses and um, government officials who are pro-business that make that debate. Environmentalists have always made the case that if you want to best protect jobs, the economy, um, and good, good incomes for, to support our families, you can best accomplish that again by protecting the environment at the same time. It's not about one or the other, it's, a, it's about both. But you have to pursue your business operations in a way that protects the environment. Like PSE&G Salem Nuclear Generating Station that kills over 14 billion Delaware River fish, eggs, and larvae a year, if they were to change their business operations using existing proved, proven technology that so many other power plants across the nation use, um, they could reduce those fish kills by 95%. Instead, they choose not to. They choose to hire the lawyers and the scientists to fight against having to do a better um, uh, install these better technologies so that they can continue to kill their fish. What we have advocated for, put in place the better technologies, protect the jobs, protect the energy, and protect the fish at the same time. You can do it. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Maya. I think I'll go back to something that uh, Carol first brought up and others on the panel mentioned, and that's how land use impacts uh, water quality to such a large degree. Um, and the question is, if it has, I think you said 90% uh, uh, land use affects water quality by 90%, was that something like that? Um, in any event, land use obviously has a big impact on water quality. Uh, Tim, you mentioned uh, governmental authority ought to be enhanced. Is, uh, is, there a, is there a need for a regional agency that's going to address land use issues on a regional basis, like the state of New Jersey has done with the Pinelands Commission, though some people say not so successfully in recent days, uh, and then the Highlands Coalition? Could the DRBC, I guess you would not agree, be an agency that could start guiding land use decisions more intelligently so that it's cheaper to and, and I'll easier. Ask, I'll ask Maya way in on whether DRBC, uh, it seems to me that there's the fundamental authority is there, the structure is there, and you know, as someone who was involved in the creation of the Highlands 
council, you know, it's a, it's a heavy lift to create new institutions. Um, th that's separate from how those operations, how those councils are operated, right? The bad decisions are being made by the Pinelands Commission about pipelines or, or other failures are not necessarily inherent in the institutional design. So if we need something regional, which we do, these are bodies that seem to be poised as logical jumping off spots to do that. I mean, the question of do we need to do it more comprehensively, yes, absolutely, both across the geography of the, of the basin and across the issues, right? We need to, to address them. Then you get into the questions that Maya raises about how well we address them, right? What's the input? Um, but, you, you know, you cannot ignore land use or let land use be driven by the rateables chase, which is fundamentally what drives the policy decisions around land use, because states have made political decisions to, to allow municipalities to set things like the densities, the locations, whether or not there are protective corridors around streams, whether or not there are stormwater ordinances in place that require um, natural approaches and maintaining, you know, open ground reinfiltration. Um, there's a set of policies you could, you could pursue those through the Clean Water Act, right? The New Jersey in particular, I think Pennsylvania is involved right now in reconsideration of the MS4 permits, right? The permits which govern how municipalities have to implement the Clean Water Act aspects of stormwater and non-point source pollution. Those could be strengthened and the environmental community has petitioned, at least I know in New Jersey, maybe in Pennsylvania as well, and laid out in great detail how those regulations could be, could be done. But, so there's a will question there, and then there's this institutional question of whether or not uh, it has to. I, I'm a big believer that, yes, we should have regional agencies. You know, the, the, the environment is fundamentally regional in nature. Watersheds, clearly, if, if the main focus is about protecting water, you know, whether it's the pines and the aquifer, whether it's the highlands and the watersheds there, the Delaware's watershed, those are all regional systems in, in nature. And we ought to manage them in a way that reflects the ecology and the way the environment works there. Maya? Um, just in terms of the structure, um, about the Delaware River Basin Commission, we do believe at the Delaware Riverkeeper Network that certainly the DRBC does have the authority under the compact to, do, uh, to deal with land use issues to the extent that they directly impact water resources. Um, what we have seen increasingly at the Delaware River Basin Commission, though, is a desire to sh sort of uh, narrow down, shrink in, pull in um, how much of its authority the DRBC chooses to exercise. And that's by virtue of a, a lot of things that we won't go into today, because then I'll speak for too much more time. But I do just want to say that, yes, the DRBC, as a watershed entity, would have the authority to do that and could do that beautifully well if they chose to. Um, but I think that I think the reality of, of the DRBC embracing that role at this time is um, slim. Anybody else? Okay, um, <coughs> let me get back. As long as we're on the DRBC, uh, uh, let's talk about the, uh, what Meyer raised, the resolutions they passed. Uh, adopted this week to look at regulations. And I'm particularly interested in, uh, uh, I, I can't remember which letter it was, but the uh, resolution dealing with water allocation and inner basin transfers. 
Um, we're to, uh, Carol talked about water allocation. It's a big issue. It's a big fight among states. Uh, Tim suggested my, uh, we, it's already been over allocated. What, what sense does it make to allow interbasin transfers to allow fracking to occur when such large quantities of water are necessary for the technology? No sense. <laughs> I, I just wanted to, to jump in a, a little bit here because I, I just want to reiterate, you know, New Jersey's water supply plan, you know, is not really a, a plan. It, it, it's looking, it's, it was delayed for years and years and years, and has, you know, it should be looking 20 plus years in the future and really only looks at 2020. And I think one of the, you know, the lessons that, you know, we saw uh, you know, during our latest drought is the saltwater line was getting up very, very high. So when we kind of think about crises we're facing, uh, you know, droughts aren't big until they are. You know, talk to any Californian about what it means to kind of live in a drought condition. Talk to, you know, any, uh, you know, really any entity in California in the West about how important water is. And so, you know, just to, you know, assume that water can be transferred from basin to basin is not looking at the underlying reality that we have a very fragile uh, aquifer system right now in the watershed. And that's not even accounting for the, the impacts of climate change. And really the, the double whammy of, of the, um, the, the kind of the, the second and third components of the DRBC resolution is that, you know, they're, uh, they're not, you know, obviously they're, they're trying to, you know, have everyone look at A, um, but B and C, those provisions on fracking wastewater and the interbasin transfers would be incredibly damaging to the watershed and could potentially facilitate more and more uh, fracking in, in, other, in other watersheds. Uh, and, and we just have to, we have to be cognizant that, you know, that has true environmental impact. And then there's also the reality of, of course, of the methane leakage from this process. Again, something that DRBC doesn't really focus on, but clearly has climate impacts. So, you know, I think that's part of the challenge from a regulatory perspective is that, you know, we, we, we don't have agencies looking at the true impact of their decisions. And that's something that obviously, you know, we would hope to change at the state level and at the regional level with DRBC. Tom, might it help to give a few numbers? And I know I lightly said no, because I feel like I was taking up too much time, but I, I'm glad that Doug weighed in, so now I don't feel bad. Um, so, but just to put in place some of the numbers, you know, to, for every well that gets drilled or fracked, it takes five million gallons of water. Um, and just, uh, if you look at some of the analysis that has been done for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania over just a seven year period in terms of the volume of fresh water that has been taken in order to support drilling and fracking operations, over a seven year period, 30 billion gallons of fresh water in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania has been used for drilling and fracking operations. That's, that's over four billion gallons of water a year. To that um, fresh, clean water, very often, sometimes they recycle, reuse frac water, but for the most part, you have to supplement with clean water. To that water, you're adding a half percent to two percent 
of the volume, um, you, you add chemicals, a proprietary mix of chemicals from the industry that includes some very toxic substances. Well, when you're talking about 5 million gallons of water, you're talking about 25,000 to 100,000 gallons of chemicals now that um, get added to this fresh water, contaminating it, very literally contaminating it. And then as that water cycles through the geology, it picks up other um, uh, toxins from the, from the geology of the earth, including um, radioactive materials. 80% of that water gets left in the ground. A portion of it, about 20% um, of it comes back to the earth. And so there, when you look on the wastewater side of it, just looking at Pennsylvania, um, in one year, 1.4 billion gallons of toxic frac wastewater was created that has to be dealt with. So, you know, when we're talking about taking water from our Delaware River, we're not talking about bits of water. I mean, potentially we're talking about huge volumes of water. And one of the things that we have done very well with here within the Delaware River watershed, and Carol talked about this a bit, is we've done a really good job looking at water volume and protecting water volume for a whole host of uses. And that means that every time there's a drought, everybody wants to dip a straw into the Delaware. Now we are adding to that, to those who want to dip their straw into the Delaware, the fracking industry who will suck up as much water as it can, as much water as we allow. So this is a very dangerous side of the equation, particularly when coupled with bringing in that frack wastewater um, to deal with within the boundaries of the watershed as well. Okay. Um we talked about water allocation, but uh, so far nobody's mentioned water conservation. Should, uh, is the basin doing enough to conserve the resources it has? So um, this is actually a good opportunity because I was hoping to kind of jump in and maybe take things in a little bit of a, a different direction. I think we work closely with a lot of the organizations at the table up here and they they know, but just for the audience to know too, that when it comes to advocating and, and sort of being active on political issues, we play an interesting role because as the estuary program, we are bound to work collaboratively with um, the agencies that are part of our program. So the states, the DRBC, the EPA, those are all our partners. And our role really is to look at um, how can we help them and help the other users, whether they're businesses, whether they are farmers, whether they are just average um, households, uh, do a better job of protecting our water resources. And so um, I think there is a lot more we could be doing around conservation. And as we're, we're in the process of, of revising our comprehensive plan for the estuary, and when we think about um, an important role to play on flow, whether it's for the river or whether it's for the aquifer particular, for example, the Kirkwood-Cohansey aquifer in southern New Jersey, conservation really need, does need to be part of that solution. And so whether it's some of our agency partners working with um, industry on conservation or whether it's us and others working with farmers and residences and other users, that's definitely a part of what we um, need to see happening. Um, I did want to comment too because I think it's important for people to understand and it's come up in a couple of different ways um, whether we're talking about funding for environmental programs and policies or whether we're talking about regulations. I think everyone in this room, certainly everyone at this table and probably in the audience too, 
we, we all want clean water. We all care about this river basin and we all want it to be the best, most prosperous place um, for people to live in. Um, the challenge with that is that there are these problems that Carol outlined and there are solutions to them and there are different approaches for solutions. We can take a regulatory approach, which is basically saying you, you have to do things this way. Um, we can also take the approach of let's help people figure out better ways to do things, but then we need funding. So I think you know, for people listening in on this discussion, an important thing to think about is if we want clean water, we have some choices to make about whether we're gonna do that in a regulatory way, whether we're gonna do that through funding to help certain partners do that. And we, we definitely, in our approach, tend to work more towards um, helping partners do that, but of course that requires funding. So when you have a time where um, th there's regulation happening and there are big cuts to funding happening, um, that obviously is, is kind of a big concern, but I know that went a little bit off track from just talking about water conservation, but um, I think that's an important thing for people to think about. Okay, Tom. Yeah, when you, when you talk about, you talked earlier about land use, whether we need new agencies and about water conservation. I mean, right now, there are, we're sitting within the district of Camden County Municipal Utilities yeah. Authority, CCMUA. There's a number of sewer authorities in the state, up and down the Delaware River, that do a wonderful job of going out into their authority. Particularly, Camden County Utilities Authority is a national leader and state leader in going out into that into their system to reduce the flows, to reduce the runoff that's getting into the system that's causing combined sewer overflow, or just for even helping their their customers within their district reduce their surface water runoff from their parking lots that are just flashing hot water into the local streams and stuff. So you have agencies there that are really doing a good job of that um, and, and can do more. And um, on that local level, there's a number of local community groups that work with CCMUA on reducing these extraneous flows. I mean, CCMUA, you know, by 2020, they're gonna be energy self-sufficient. I mean, they are going over and above utilizing the Environmental Infrastructure Trust upgrading their system well beyond their permit limits because it's the right thing to do. And I think that's a good story for the estuary. Um, and secondly, is, uh, in 2002, when I was the state drought manager, um, everybody talks about the drought when it happens. As soon as you get three big rainstorms, it's off to the next issue, particular legislature. And here we are 15 years later. We just went through last summer's issues. And we haven't done nearly enough to deal with our water supply um, and our drought issues. Our, many of our, 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 our water treatment, municipal water treatment systems are still leaking a substantial amount of treated wastewater, wasting a lot of money. So there's a lot of money in the system that's being wasted that needs to come out that can conserve water and not waste it and not waste the water. And that's all within this watershed. So I think Dennis's comments point out, to go back to your first question about water conservation, that clearly, we're, we're not conserving water as well as we could. And part of that's simply because of the age of the infrastructure. You know, we're one of the original colonies and that type of thing. Um, uh, you know, we, we have a program in Ocean City that's EPA funded. Uh, we call it Water Champions. We work with the state and we have high school kids that are going in. We teach them how to do water audits at businesses. And so they work with the business community. They go in, they look at a facility, whether it's a restaurant or something else. And, and figure out where there are um, devices, you know, like shower heads and, and dishwashers and that type of thing that are, could be more water efficient and then work to swap them out. And, um, you know, those kinds of opportunities are there. The, the, 
the question about how do you sustain that, though, right? How do you make that not just a program that's being done by a nonprofit working with the high school, working with EPA, but rather the standard thing so that we don't go on again and off again? And we have to recognize the value of doing that. And you boil it down to the money. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of money that's just wasted. You know, I always am struck by as much uh, carping as people do in the state of New Jersey about their taxes, the, the amount of waste that goes on. And I think, you know, the business folks are, are right when they talk about that. Um, but leakage in, 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 the, um, in the water, you know, um, in the water pipes. It's, again, partly it's a short-term view, right? We look at things in political cycles. Uh, who's going to get tagged with having to raise the money or dedicate the money or not? You know, not steal the money from a dedicated account to use it in other areas. But, um, you know, we have to change that type of uh, framing of how we approach these issues. And then, you know, if there are good demonstrations about where that money will save industry um, uh, money in the long run, then I think you need the regulatory framework to bring them to the table. Because even when there's instances of it actually making sense, you think back about the Pollution Prevention Act in the 90s, right? demonstrated to save the chemical industry money uh, by substituting out non-toxic alternatives in the processes, right? And Dennis's predecessor, you know, was was like tooth and nail trying to dismantle that act in, in the New Jersey legislature. So you have to have, there is, I mean, I, un I understand everybody likes clean water, and I think it's good to say that, and I think fundamentally we do, but let's not be naive or Pollyannish about the role that profit and the way business operates um, plays in it. There's a need for regulation uh, to counterbalance just the fundamentals of the economics that we that we operate under in the country. Yes, uh, both Dennis and you talked about bottom-up efforts that Carol also mentioned, uh, trying to address some of these problems. But the other issue is scaling that up, and as you mentioned, then uh, looking at the big picture. And looking at the big picture. Um, what, uh, let me ask the panelists, what would you prioritize if, as, if a finite amount of resources are available and actual, not only money, but time, talent, and effort, where should that go in terms of addressing the problems facing uh, the basin? Is climate change at the top? Climate change is certainly up there, but I, I think to address climate change, you, you actually need to address lots of other things. It kind of factors into almost everything we do. Um, and we're, we're in the process of right, right now, which I mentioned, of revising the Comprehensive Conservation and Management Plan for the Delaware Estuary. And the process we're going through is exactly what you described. We do have a finite amount of resources and we are in the process of looking at what are the priorities and certainly we've just come out with some of our, our, our first kind of outline of that in a document that we are calling the core elements document but we're, we're seeking public and partner input on that right now to hear from other people what would you make the priorities this is what we're hearing what we're putting out there is what we're hearing from the experts and the scientists that we work with all the time and that's hundreds of people but it's still not, you know, all of the all of the people in the basin. So um, we're very interested in hearing from people like the ones in this room about what should we make the priorities for the next 10 to 20 years for the estuary. We have our ideas, and we talk with lots of different organizations that have their ideas, and some of those are represented. 
um, but we, we need to hear from more people, so. What are, what are the priorities that people keep mentioning to you? Well, the, in the revised plan that we're working on, we have three sort of focal areas. One is around water, one's around communities, and one is around habitats. And um, there are priorities in all of those. In water, we're looking at reducing nutrients, sustaining flow, um, addressing other kinds of pollutants like toxic pollutants. And then uh, in habitats, we're looking at shellfish, wetlands, certain types of fish. Uh, for communities, resilience and access are some of the priorities, trying to protect resilience, make communities, help communities be more resilient and promote access as well as engaging people. Um, I think, you know, I agreed with Carol's answer when uh, asked about if there was one thing that you could change, I think if we could implant that um, background thinking of everyone thinking about the Delaware estuary as the place that they live and the place that they love and everything they do, that, that would be my answer to that. And so we, we put a lot of effort into really trying to engage people and provide ways for people to really make a difference. Yeah. And, uh, it's interesting. Uh, Chesapeake does, as Tim mentioned, uh, everybody knows about the Chesapeake problems, <coughs> but people don't know so much about the Delaware, even though they live around here. Right. Um, but is that because we've done a better job addressing the problems, or we just have a better natural situation where the bay flushes and there is, we're in an area with a lot of rainfall and well, I think since the, the issue of funding has come up, I think, you know, the efforts in the Chesapeake Bay watershed for restoration and public outreach and all of the things we're talking about today have been factors higher than the f kinds of funding we've seen in the Delaware River watershed, not by times, you know, 10 or times 20, but times 100. So the level of resources that they're working with, and there are people in our basin, uh, including uh, the Coalition for the Delaware River Watershed with with the um, getting the Delaware River Basin Conservation Act passed, that's been a really important step forward because that's opening a door to, to these higher levels of resources that we see in the Chesapeake and some other places. But I would also say that access is part of it. And that's one of the reasons that we've made access a priority in our CCMP because if people can't have access to and experience the resource, then they're not gonna have that kind of affinity. And so I think in the Chesapeake, there are more opportunities for direct access, and it's one of the things we'd like to see more of here in the Delaware. So I just wanted to jump in because I think it's hard to answer, you know, an academic question without thinking about the existential, existential threat that we're facing from EPA budget cuts. So the estuary program is zeroed out in the Trump EPA budget. You know, so this would obviously have a huge impact and obviously the partnership's ability to do the work, a huge impact on the Chesapeake Bay, a huge impact on estuary programs around, around the country. And then, you know, when we talk about one of the very successful uh, programs here in New Jersey, the Clean Water Revolving Fund, you know, that obviously would, would also be impacted by EPA budget cuts. So, you know, we, we, you know we, it, it's hard to, you know, I'm so glad that Dennis brought up the, the work of, of Andy at CCUMUA, but it, it's hard to kind of highlight local success projects when we know that our funding is, you know, under, uh, under threat. Obviously, this is a huge issue amongst the congressional delegation, and we have a, the House Appropriations Chair, Rodney Freelandheisen, represents part of, of the watershed in, the, in northern New Jersey. So, you know, I, I feel like I just had to say that, but to answer the question, 
um, and you know, I think it's it's two parts. One is getting back to an anti-degradation philosophy using the Clean Water Act to ensure that we're protecting our waterways before they become degraded. And this is important for all parts of the watershed, but especially in those headwater areas, especially in forested areas, because it's a lot easier to protect tributaries and streams that feed into drinking water sources before they become degraded. And we saw a lot of progress on this in the early part of the 2000s in New Jersey. Uh, we've obviously had a lot of, uh, we've seen a lot of attempts to roll back some of these protections, um, especially category one buffers uh, in New Jersey. Um, but it's, it's more than just buffers, it's also about wetlands and uh, ensuring that our wetlands are there. And this is where it really does link with climate change because we talk about floodplains and really, you know, the picture that Carol showed are those condos, you know, essentially, uh, you know, flooded uh, along the Delaware. You know, that's really a picture that could be all of us, uh, you know, in a couple decades. Um, and and that, that kind of needs to be obviously incorporated in the planning, but that needs to be kind of, you know, culturally that needs to become more of a conversation. If you live in Miami, you're not, you know, you're thinking about recovery, but it's not as if Miami didn't know about flooding before Irma. And, you know, right now, as, as Dennis said, you know, we talk about droughts, and I remember his testimony 15 years ago in front of the Senate Environment Committee, and then we forget about it. And I think in many ways, the same concern with not having, you know, the question of not having enough water and then having too much water, people think of it as, you know, once in a lifetime uh, events and increasingly become more and more common. And so that obviously needs to change because, uh, you know, clearly the watershed is gonna be vulnerable if we're not planning uh, for future extreme weather events. Yep. So I'm always struck by this sort of um, comparison between the relationship people have with the Chesapeake and the relationship people have with the Delaware. And simply because you hear more about the Chesapeake Bay, there's this presumption that there's this better connection between the community and that waterway. And I really don't experience it that way. I think that the general world, the bigger world outside of the Chesapeake Bay watershed, um, hears a lot about the Chesapeake because there is a lot of investment in it. And there is a lot of um, conversation from a regulatory perspective. There are a lot of things that happen that uh, the the com the conversation spills out beyond the boundaries of that watershed. But I mean, think about it. It's, it's not really the Chesapeake Bay watershed, right? It's the Susquehanna River watershed. But you don't hear about the Susquehanna. You hear about the Chesapeake because that's sort of where a lot of these funding dynamics go. The way I really experience when I go out into the Delaware River watershed, and I'm throughout the entire Delaware River watershed all the time, there is tremendous relationship with the river. The relationship is with the river, or with the estuary, or with the Delaware Bay, depending upon where you live in the watershed, right? And so the connectivity isn't to that, the, the one sort of collected area that is the bay. It's all along the length of the river. And there's a lot of the connectivity perhaps isn't with the Delaware River itself, but it's with the Muskinekong, it's with the Schuylkill, so it's with that tributary, and there is that recognition that that tributary goes to the Delaware, but the heart connection is with the tributary that's closest to that community. So I think there's tremendous relationship with our Delaware River and its watershed and tremendous care and tremendous advocacy um, that takes place on behalf of these beautiful watershed resources. So I really push back on this idea that, that the people who live within the Delaware River watershed don't care as much about our Delaware as the people who live in the Chesapeake Bay watershed care about the Chesapeake Bay. I just don't experience it that way um, in reality. 
In terms of priorities, um, I really have to, um, you know, uh, pick sides with Carol, so to speak, and I don't mean to pick sides, but I really do stand with Carol on this issue because she addressed it so beautifully in her early presentation. The fact of the matter is we don't have the luxury of picking one priority or the other, and it's impossible. You can't fix a problem, you know, in the headwaters of the watershed dealing with, with, with one issue and then, you know, perhaps talking about um, the, the trout and how to protect the trout populations and think that you are um, going to, you know, once you fix that one part of the problem, everything things going to be right with the fish populations in the Delaware River. They're not. If you go down to the Delaware estuary, you are going to have, um, you know, a dozen plus species of fish that you may not eat or should limit your consumption of because of, of a wide variety of contaminants, right? Um, so I think we don't, the reality is people love to ask this question. Carol gets asked this question. I get asked this question. Every panelist gets asked this question. If there's one thing you could do, what would that be? And we don't have the luxury of that, and it's it's not a question based in reality. We do have to look cumulatively. We do have to look at every reach of the watershed. We do have to look at the harms that um, different communities are experiencing and different successes that they're achieving and how we can take those successes to other communities. That's how we're going to best protect our river and, and watershed, by really basing our, 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 our protective work in the reality that it is a huge, huge job, and we don't have the luxury of pick, picking and choosing, but we really have to take on um, the whole job if we're going to best protect our, our river and our watershed. Thank you. Okay, uh, I guess we are, uh, I should ask some questions from the audience. Uh, Okay, and here's one. Often issues receive a higher degree of public attention and focus. I guess we're on this again. Once a price tag has been fixed, saltwater intrusion into water supply intakes appears certain. Is there an office trying to calculate the billions, uh, the billions desalinization will cost? Uh, I don't, I'm not sure if there is an office. I don't think, think we're at that, point. Uh, I don't think that, we're at that which point. Which is different than whether we ought to be calculating that, right? To, to the extent that people are motivated by the economic questions, you know, the, the sort of the consequences of losing the water supply from the river by mismanaging it, it you know, the demand doesn't go away. So, uh, and I think I was part of this conversation earlier where this, where this question came from. If you look at Cape May, who overdrew their aquifers to the point that the aquifer got too salty to be able to use safely, they had to build a desalinization plant at price, I think, was 10, 10 or $15 million at the time. So, you know, you could, I, I would imagine, quantify all that when you get to the point where the water supply is unusable and what the cost would be to provide alternatives, whether that's through treatment or some other sourcing. And that might be a good number to put into the conversation and say, you know, you can either manage the resource now wisely and um, these are the costs that you would avoid, and does that make any difference to you? We're not anywhere close to that process, though. I, I mean, I'm not aware of anybody that's doing that calculation, but I, I have to echo what Tim said in a slightly different way. I mean, I think the fact of the matter is we need to be thinking about how to best protect those water supply sources with every single decision that's being made. And we do have to consider the trade-off, and that is absolutely not happening. If you just look at the Delaware River Deepening Project, not to 
dredge up an old fight. So, <laughs> but it was a large part of my life for a long time and continues to be. But throughout that discussion, no matter how many times we tried to bring up the issue of the salt line and the implications for Atlantic sturgeon, but also for drinking water supplies and the combination impact of the deepening plus sea level rise, plus the other issue, and then compounding that with um, the dredging project, every time you tried to bring up the drinking water issue, it was lightly and quickly dismissed um, as not being realistic. But I think when we listen to the numbers that we heard earlier today, it is a very real threat. And to the extent that a deepening project that could and should have been avoided um, and we could have still provided, you know, protected the ports and protected the jobs and all of that, that good stuff. Um, um, and not, and, and in that decision-making process did not think about the implications for drinking water supply. That was a huge mistake. We tried to raise the conversation. It got ignored and it may soon be too late. So we need to be thinking about it at every single turn. Okay, um, another question from the audience talks about the uh, EPA cuts, the New Jersey fiscal crisis, and uh, misappropriated remediation dollars are amplifying a vicious cycle that endangers both our watershed and economy. What policy actions and business strategies could combine to stop and reverse this cycle? I'm going to pitch that to you. Dennis, because you talked well, about I wish, I wish I knew the answer to that, and I think a whole lot of other people wish they knew the answer to it. But um, I, I guess I, I, I guess dedicating those funds to the intended purposes is a start, and which is going to sound silly coming from me because I was against that. Because if those funds are being collected and not using for the intended purposes now, those funds are costing somebody money. Um, and right now, New Jersey, you know, when you're in manufacturing, the biggest costs to you are your energy costs and your, and your materials costs. And right now, New Jersey businesses, the cost of electricity is 56% higher than, than the average cost of the rest of the country. Um, so we have to figure out some way to reduce that cost. Um, and I don't know how we're going to do that. I don't know if there is a good answer to it. Um, but we have to grow the economy to grow the revenue base to try and make up for those things, I think is the only real, is the only real way. We need to attract more business, need to keep people that, with high paying jobs in this state to keep contributing to the revenue base of the state so that those funds can be used for intended purposes. Well, I, I wanted to jump in on this because I think there's a lot of agreement in the sense, you know, on any, on any issue, if you are saying that funds are gonna be going to one area and then you raid them again and again, uh, you know, clearly that's not a way to run a government. And just because we've gotten used to that in this administration doesn't mean that it's right. And also, let's be clear that this is not a issue, you know, solely based on the Christie administration. We have seen raids of dedicated funds throughout on both parties, uh, you know, throughout decades in Trenton. What we have seen over the course of the last eight, close to eight years, is an intensification of this process. Now, the, the societal benefits charge that Dennis talked about um, and the rating of the Clean Energy Fund really has become endemic. 
Um, and it's become endemic because not only the administration, but the legislature obviously signed off on these raids as well. There's been more than $1.5 billion that's been raided over the course um, of the administration. And it gets hard to you know, stop those raids once they've started. And I think really the, the way that we need to do it, it's not perfect. Um, and really we shouldn't have to be amending our constitution to ensure that dedicated funds are going to where they should. But that is the clearest answer. That's part of the reason why you have the environmental remediation ballot question on, um, you know, on November's ballot uh, here in New Jersey. But you know, if we're, you know, it's, it's crazy to say, but if we're not locking it in into the constitution, uh, you know, it's gonna be hard to ensure that future funds aren't rated. And you know, the Clean Energy Fund is perhaps the best example of where funds can help everybody in the sense they can help, they can help residences, they can help uh, commercial institutions, and they, uh, obviously the energy used at a home and a business, that's the same. So we, we need to reduce our energy use and we have the funds to be able to do it. And those funds should be dedicated in a way to ensure that they're not rated. And I think that goes for some of the other uh, funds mentioned, you know, lead, lead remediation being an obvious one, but the Clean Energy Fund is kind of the big kahuna uh, if we're looking to, to end the raids. Okay, don't. Carol, you wanted to say something. Yeah. Wait, wait, can everybody hear me? John? Um, just two things. One, the question of conservation, absolutely it can be better. But I just wanted you to know that the DOBC actually has a regulation to address that lost water in water systems. In some water systems, are losing 30% of their water. So it's a regulation. They have to do audits. It's, it's supposed to be November 30th. So, so, and my response is, we one, we don't have the luxury to wait and see. Um, it's really not appropriate, um, again, to be taking our Delaware River water to in, in induce, support, encourage drilling and fracking operations in other watersheds. The ramifications of, of this dirty energy fossil fuel are so far reaching and so overwhelming for an energy source that even the industry itself says is going to be pe peaking and on its way out the door by the year 2020. It's really a mismanagement of resources, whether you're talking about ecological resources or economic resources. Uh, Carol's right, it, it, it's a matter of, of, 
of time and, and place, but it's also a matter of cumulative impacts and volume and the number of wells that you're talking about in these communities. And in fact, the Delaware Riverkeeper Network had an analysis done that looked at what would be the implications of drilling operations in particular watersheds if it was allowed to come into the Delaware River watershed. Now here, we may not be talking, we may have that prohibition, but you can still start to see what the taking of those volumes of waters, um, what could be the implications for for waterways because that was an aspect of the study. And so if you're allowing a drilling operation to suck all of the water up out of a, a an individual watershed over the, the period of time that the frackers need it, um, you you can in some cases be seriously dewatering that water supply source. So when we looked at, I think it was the um, Lackawaxen, one of the, the, the real proposals for taking frack water out in order to supply one well pad, now that would have been a well pad in the basin, but could have, you know, if we're talking about a well pad out of the basin, same thing. doesn't really matter where that is in terms of the water withdrawal. But we would be ta talking about taking up as much as 75% of the water from an exceptional value stream in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania um, during a period of time when the stream has it. It's, it's sort of like Carol talks about, you know, talks about her talk. We're not, when it comes to these issues, we're not talking about averages. We're, we are, sometimes we're talking about moments in time or periods in time. And for a, for a stream to be losing 75% of its water flow, over a period of time has huge implications for the health of the ecology of that of that stream. So, you know, Carol and I clearly, um, I, I think we agree on, on, on the facts of, you know, what needs to be looked at, but I think we disagree on, on, on what are the implications and how to look at it. I'm really looking at it from the cumulative impacts uh, in terms of the water withdrawal, the volume of wells, and also this idea that it is wholly inappropriate to be using our Delaware River to continue us down a dirty fossil fuel path when the the reality is clean energy options are here today we could totally support the commonwealth of pennsylvania with clean energy options by the year 2030 it's just a matter of politicians putting their minds to it creating the policies putting in place the funding and the incentives and the tax incentives to make it happen and again delaware riverkeeper network did an actual plan like it's a road map for the legislators and regulators of the commonwealth of pennsylvania to tell them how to become totally supported by clean energy options here in the commonwealth of pennsylvania in the in the coming decades New New Jersey can do it, New York can do it. There are plans for the entire United States of America. It's very doable. It doesn't make sense to continue to invest our policies, our time, our resources, and our money in a dirty energy option that's gonna be gone in a few, few short decades, leaving us truly dependent upon foreign sources of energy. But then those foreign sources of energy we're gonna be dependent upon are the clean sources of energy because all those other countries aren't stupid enough to continue to be trying to shovel all of their time time and energy and attention into more dirty fossil fuels and fracking, they're trying to become the leaders on the clean energy options, China, India, Germany. So, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, we are going to have to buy our energy sources from other nations. It's not going to be dirty fossil fuels. It's going to be the clean energy. We should be the clean energy leaders. We should be getting those jobs. We shouldn't be the dirty energy leaders that have lost our water, our air, our health, and our communities um, in the process. Well, some states have put the uh, incentives in place, and New Jerseyans yeah. have seen a billion dollars, more than a billion dollars in clean energy funds used to balance the budget, which is just tax, which I agree with Dennis on that point. Um, 
Since we were talking about fracking, I should ask this question from the audience. Uh, where does the Pennsylvania fracking waste get disposed? So in large part at this point, um, it gets uh, largely taken to other states like Ohio to be injected into the ground. Um, there, 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 I think there was some discussion about some injection actually somewhere in Pennsylvania, but I think for the most part, um, it actually gets exported to other places to be, to be dealt with. Um, so. And when, when um, frack water, now I don't think Pennsylvania's frack water is being taken to Oklahoma, but in Oklahoma where fracking waste um, is being injected into the ground, you're having a huge problem with earthquakes. And so where just a couple of years ago they had 21 earthquakes a year, now we're talking about 130 plus earthquakes a year that are re the result of the injection of that wastewater into the ground. And that is very um, uh, clear in the science, as well as now the science emerging that the actual frack process itself is causing problems in terms of fractures in the earth and earthquakes. So the ramifications from start to finish of this dirty fossil fuel, which is fracking for shale gas and, and, and even using that gas, the ramifications are very far reaching and the wastewater is one significant adverse part of it. And I just wanted to jump in real quick because I, I certainly agree 100% with Maya, you know, whether you're in Bradford County, whether you're in Wayne County, you know, the, clearly there are impacts of fracking those communities, obviously impacts from fracking wastewater as well. And, and I think it's important, you know, when we talk about the Delaware watershed, it might not be intuitive to talk about energy. But clearly, um, as Maya said, you know, we, we do need to think about energy not only for the impacts of our current, you know, of fossil fuels, but also from the economic cost of not taking action. And something we haven't talked a lot about is the federal flood insurance program and the cost of living in a floodplain. Obviously, a lot of people um, from uh, recovering from Sandy that suddenly realize that they can't afford their uh, flood insurance anymore. And that obviously, the insurance industry is going to push some of those changes. You know, there's a, a study from the Union of Concerned Scientists that says that in 18 years, so this is not some kind of way in the future when none of us are around, but in 18 years, in 2035, we're going to have more than 20 New Jersey cities that are going to have flooding every other week that covers more than 10% of their towns. That's a tremendous cost. And obviously, if we're not taking action, that's only going to extenuate. And we clearly can't build seawalls everywhere. We can't you know, have enough wetlands to be able to stop uh, to be able to, to stop that that flooding, so it, it, you know, it, it just it, it's a reminder that we we can't ignore these issues. We can't kind of treat them as two separate things. And I just wanted to wrap up by by noting that obviously this is a huge watershed, and we actually have remediation that's going on right now from uh, you know from literally not only decades ago from Superfund sites in the. Um, uh, in the in the watershed, but also coal mine coal mining, and we, we have impacts uh, south of Hazelton uh, that the Schuylkill Action Network has been working to remediate uh, from acid drainage um, into the Silver Creek, which is a tributary for the Schuylkill. And so there are long-term costs that perhaps we're not thinking about right now that we are still cleaning up. And again, that's why we need an active EPA and why we need to look at the full life cycle costs uh, of any any energy infrastructure. Okay, um, I'm being advised we want to uh, end up here. Uh, first off, I want to thank the panel, who I thought were excellent, and uh, thank you.
This NJ Spotlight podcast was produced in cooperation with State Impact Pennsylvania, WHYY Radio in Philadelphia, and was sponsored by the William Penn Foundation with additional support from the Coalition for the Delaware River Watershed. For more information, visit njspotlight.com. For everyone at NJ Spotlight, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thank you for joining us, and take good care. 